Suburban Cook County is following Chicago's lead to encourage bars, fitness clubs, salons, and barbershops to scale back operations after what county officials describe as a new surge in COVID-19 cases in suburban Cook County, particularly among young adults. And law enforcement reform takes center stage in Chicago this summer, but rising crime complicates the discussion, and the latest Cranes Forum digs into the debate. Journalist David Mendel joins the podcast today to talk it over. Susan Lee, for instance, the city safety director hired by Mayor Lightfoot, uh, was instrumental in a lot of anti-violence efforts and and successful efforts in, in Los Angeles, and she watched as that police department did reform. And she believes that it will occur here. We want defund the police. We want that money in our hospitals. We want that money in our schools. We want that money for our children. We want that money for jobs. We want that money for all these streets can stop being raggedy. We want that money for us. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist. It's Tuesday, August 4th. In these uncertain times, it's important to have people you trust by your side. When 11,000 local business owners needed a Paycheck Protection Program loan, they turned to their Wintrust banker to secure funding because that's a relationship they can count on. Businesses are navigating some of the biggest challenges they will ever face. Wintrust is here to answer their calls. They'll answer yours, too. Start the conversation at Wintrust.com slash Daily Gist. Member FDIC. Police reform has taken a highly visible role in Chicago this summer, but rising crime kind of complicates that discussion. And the latest Cranes Forum examines that very debate. Journalist David Mendel joins the podcast today. David, thanks so much for joining us today and, and talking this through. So to start, just let's just talk through the reporting that you did on this recent piece that you have in the forum. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a difficult story to report uh, in, in the long form that, that, that we do here at Cranes Forum. Because it was a moving target, uh, the, the story is changing day by day. And so often on in the forum, we just take a, a big topic and that's, that's a little more stable than uh, uh, police reform. And it, what, another part that was difficult was we did not get uh, cooperation from the, the FOP. Uh, we were looking to have a column written by uh, the FOP president, and he, he declined uh, ultimately. Um, so they're clearly, you know, it, it, when you can't reach someone and, and uh, you can't get their viewpoint in the in your story, it's always a little frustrating. Um, and, uh, you know, activists, they're, they're, they're looking for their voices to be heard. So, uh, you know, I, I don't, I think I balanced the story off, but it was difficult to, uh, you know, when you have uh, you know, a lot of information from one side of the story and only part of the information from the other side. 
When we are talking about the idea of police reform, sometimes that can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. What did you hear pretty consistently from people that you spoke to for this? Well, sure, it does mean different things to different people. The, uh, there are activists such as the Black Abolitionist Network that they have clear uh, demands. Uh, uh, they they want uh, you know police out of the schools, um, and uh, they have a, 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 just a list of demands they want uh, from police. And uh, when it comes to reform, they want mon- money shifted out of the. Uh, police for social services, for healthcare, for other areas. Um, that's sort of the basis of when you hear defund the police. That's sort of where it starts: is let's reduce police budgets uh, and shift some of that money into the neighborhoods that are struggling with police, minority neighborhoods in particular. They're struggling with how police are are. Uh, uh, supervising their neighborhoods. And that's where it starts. But you also have uh, uh, folks who do just want the police, you know, they, they say policing in America is broken and they want police departments completely defunded and, and start over from from scratch. Uh, that's the most radical viewpoint. And obviously, you know, that's what um, uh, President Trump has used in his ads against Joe Biden, that he that Biden is pushing for that extreme. It's inaccurate. Joe Biden is not pushing for that extreme. He has said that he wants some, uh, you know, um, money shifted into other areas uh, such as uh, uh, health care and mental health clinics and and counseling and education in, in the communities. But uh, uh, so it, it's become a political football. And it's when, when it gets into that mode, it's very difficult to see, you know, the forest for the trees. So as you note in the story that you wrote here for this particular forum, LAPD took about a decade to really make some meaningful steps into their reform. As you were talking to people for this story, did you get a sense of, I don't know, is it skepticism or optimism or, or what from people that, uh, of how long it might take to see some meaningful reform for CPD. Yeah, that that again is in the eye of the beholder. Um, there are uh, Susan Lee, for instance, the city safety director hired by Mayor Lightfoot, uh, was instrumental in a lot of anti-violence uh, efforts and, and successful efforts in in Los Angeles. And she watched as that police department did reform, and she believes that it will occur here. That, that Mayor Lightfoot is on the right track. Obviously, that's her boss. She's hired her <laughs> to be one of the people in, in charge of this. But she believes it, it, you know, it will come. She says, where there's a will, there's a way. That uh, It took a long time in L.A. It's, it's a big institution of 13,000 officers with a culture all of its own. To change course of a 13,000-person group, it's not going to just turn on a dime. It's going to take years. So. You know, if substantial reform is to occur within the police department, yeah, we're, we're probably a decade away from it uh, before we see the department with any substantial change. But there, they'll argue the, the, the new police uh, superintendent, David Brown, will argue we're on our way, you know, that he's made some personnel moves uh, that will uh, encourage this and push it forward. But as you noted at the beginning of this, we're, we're also sort of in the middle of a crime wave. Here in, in uh, amid this pandemic and amid this hot summer, and that makes changes harder to make. 
it's a very delicate topic. Only time will tell what the outcome will be. Well, there were several lines in, in this piece that you wrote that really stuck out, but one in particular I thought was really worth highlighting, and that says, still, the school of thought that Chicago cannot police its way out of neighborhood violence is becoming more prevalent. Talk to me about that. You know, even David Brown, the police superintendent, uh, sort of points fingers, uh, you know, away from his department, saying, we can't do this alone. And I that, that thinking, yeah, I think is becoming more prevalent. You had a... Um, uh, County Commissioner Brandon Johnson, uh, who was elected, uh, who, who over uh, overtook uh, uh, Richard Boykin uh, on, on the west side for the county commissioner seat. One of the things he was pushing was, uh, you know, substantial police reform, and uh, Boykin was more of the status quo. So this, uh, you know, I think that thinking is becoming more prevalent that that something needs to be done. Uh, and it needs to be done uh, uh, in, in a more aggressive manner. And uh, even there are officers, and, and there are, are uh, I interviewed a deputy chief, Ernest Cato, who was in the, in, in the running for um, uh, the police superintendent's job but didn't get it, who he's won a lot of plaudits from City Hall and um, anti-violence folks for um working in the neighborhoods and pushing com- community policing. And he, he's had some success in the Austin neighborhood. So I think there is a, a change in thinking. The old guard is, is you know, isn't going to, to go easily, but there is a change in thinking that officers do need to be more involved in their communities. Uh, and, you know, uh, as Cato put it, bring back officer friendly, that the police officer sh- walking down the street shouldn't be someone you're afraid of. He should be someone who you know and and trust. But in some Chicago neighborhoods, the trust between police officer and citizen isn't there. So, so this topic is a is a fraught one, and and even the conversation around it is, you know, emotions are high surrounding this topic, and people have some really strong opinions about it. What was particularly challenging for you to report on this topic? Well, to get past emotions. Sometimes, uh, you know, I, I went to a couple of protests and rallies and people get quite emotional about the topic and seeing the interactions with police, um, uh, you know, it, it was disheartening. That we have to live in fear of the people that they are paying supposedly to protect us. Those bums over there, those bums over there hiding behind cars. That's not right. We have peaceful assembly, uh, even though all these protests have not been peaceful, and, and there have been folks who've jumped in and taken advantage of, of uh, folks gathering in, in these kinds of situations to wreak some havoc. But uh, you know that was, you know, that was maybe the hardest part to to walk through some of these protests and just see what seems to be our country, you know, fraying at the edges, and um, I, I, it's. We need to figure out a way uh, somehow for for both the police and and the folks on the on the other side who to uh, try to reach some sort of uh, agreement here on how policing should should move forward. And it's uh, uh, it's gonna it's a it's a you know that's that's a gonna be a difficult place to reach, but uh, I hope we can do it. Indeed. Well, there's a lot here, and I appreciate you joining the podcast today to break it down. Thanks so much. Appreciate your time.
Okay, thank you, Amy. Coming up, Illinois weed sales set a record in July, surging 28% to $60.9 million and beating what was already a strong increase in June. That and more right after this. Chicago Comes Back provides resilient leadership insights to help your business move forward from the pandemic. Delivered on Thursdays, this free e-newsletter features up-to-date information and guidance for Chicago's businesses. Sign up at chicagobusiness.com slash Chicago Comes Back. I'm Danny Ecker, and I cover commercial real estate at Crane's Chicago Business. I'm Stephanie Goldberg, and I cover healthcare at Crane's. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. Suburban Cook County is taking a page out of Chicago's playbook to encourage certain businesses like bars and fitness clubs, salons and barbershops to scale back after a new surge in COVID-19 cases in suburban Cook County, particularly among young adults. That, according to county officials. In the past 30 days, the state's Region 10, which encompasses suburban Cook County, has seen 16 days of increases in positive coronavirus tests and eight days of hospital admission increases. Cook County Department of Public Health co Lead, Dr. Rachel Rubin said, quote, Chicago put in place some more restrictions about 10 days ago, and now we are following suit, continuing by saying her agency is especially concerned because the county's positivity rate stands at 5.8 percent, up from 5.2 only about 10 days ago. She also said suburban Cook has not seen a significant increase in hospital bed usage or ICU admissions related to COVID. But unlike Chicago, it is seeing a rise in cases among 18 to 29 year olds. According to the county statement, rates for that age group are now about two and a half times higher than they were at the end of March, and that that group now has the highest rates of the virus. Rubin said the county has traced outbreaks to day camps, weddings, and prom parties in recent weeks, and according to county data, Deerfield, Melrose Park, Calumet City, Des Plaines, and Niles are on the higher end of case rates. The county's health department is asking that bars that only serve alcohol, as opposed to those that also serve food, to only serve customers outdoors. Restaurants are being asked to limit table occupancy to six, gym classes should be held to a maximum of 10, and that barbers and salons should not do services like shaves and facials and stuff like that that require customers to take off face coverings. And the department says that residential property managers should bar more than six people from entering a residential unit. At least for now, the rollback measures are voluntary, and unlike Chicago, Cook County's Department of Public Health does not have partner departments to enforce this. When the county finds out about a violation, Rubin says that generally they'll just call a business and ask them to do better, and she said that businesses have generally been cooperative. She did add, though, that her agency is working with their legal team to determine what level of enforcement could be done. U.S. aviation regulators have proposed a long list of fixes to Chicago-based Boeing's grounded 737 MAX and one of the most extensive sets of requirements the agency has issued following an accident. In addition to fixes specific to the system implicated in the accidents, it would also mandate computer changes to improve reliability, reroute electrical wires that don't meet safety rules, and would add a warning light that was inoperative in the two crashes. The release of the proposal shows that after 16 months of the plane's grounding and a series of investigations, investigative reports, as well as congressional hearings, aviation regulators are satisfied that the fixes will allow the plane to safely resume service. Flight tests of the redesigned system by the FAA were completed on July 2nd. 
According to a summary report included with the proposal, the agency said it has preliminarily determined that Boeing's proposed changes to the 737 MAX design, flight crew procedures, and maintenance procedures effectively mitigated the plane-related safety issues that were revealed in the crashes. The FAA's proposal for fixes and a preliminary report on its findings from its own internal investigation provides the most detailed accounting by the agency to date on the plane's original shortcomings and what went wrong in the two crashes. The FAA said that the actions would cost U.S. airlines about a million dollars for the 73 planes registered in the U.S., but didn't estimate how much it would cost to make the required changes on the several hundred jets registered in other countries, and noted that that number didn't account for Boeing's costs, as under warranty, Boeing may cover some of the airline's costs for repair. The public has 45 days to comment on the FAA's plans, which means that the plane most likely can't get the official go-ahead to return until October at the earliest. With airlines having to retrain pilots and perform maintenance on the grounded fleet, it'll take weeks or months longer before the planes start carrying passengers. Finalizing new pilot training will be done separately by an FAA panel that will also give the public a chance to comment on the changes. Policyholders have sued giant auto insurers, including Allstate and Geico, saying the companies didn't sufficiently reduce premiums enough given the number of drivers staying off the road due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Six separate lawsuits were filed in Cook County Circuit Court last week, saying insurance relief offered during the pandemic just doesn't go far enough when taking into consideration the drop-in claims. The Chicago Tribune reports that complaints compare the company's rebate policies to State Farm, which offered a 25% credit between March 20. 20th and the end of May. The suit notes that miles driven by Illinois motorists dropped by nearly two-thirds in the spring and that all states' 15 percent credit, quote, falls far short of the relief that any fair and reasonable actuarial analysis would require. Other insurers named as defendants were American Family Insurance, Progressive, Geico, Erie Insurance, and The Travelers. That also according to the Tribune. According to one of the attorneys representing Illinois consumers, if the suit is granted class action status, it would include all Illinois policyholders who had policies with the auto insurers since March. Illinois marijuana sales jumped to nearly $61 million in July, beating the previous record by 28%. According to figures from the Illinois Department of Financial and Professional Regulation, sales of recreational cannabis totaled $60.9 million. For comparison, June sales were $47.6 million. Along with increased production, several new retail shops have opened in recent months, including locations in Chicago, the suburbs, and near the Missouri, Wisconsin, and Indiana borders. Sales briefly dipped after recreational use started in January, but have steadily increased since. Sales per day have increased 70% since March. Dispensaries were deemed essential businesses during the initial wave of COVID-19 shutdowns, but safety precautions like physical distancing initially slowed down the number of customers that dispensaries could serve. Initially, supply was way short of demand, but marijuana companies have since been increasing their growing capacity. And that's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Our continuous news feed lives at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks to our guest, David Mendel. Be sure to subscribe to these conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is you like to get your audio on demand. And find hashtag Crane's Daily Gist on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And let's continue talking there about these and other business stories. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.